I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Thousands are expected to attend a pro-life vigil in Dublin's Merrion Square at half past four tomorrow afternoon after Archbishop Dermot Martin backed what's expected to be one of the largest rallies since the government indicated it would legislate to allow abortion. Dr Martin said he would attend St Andrew's Church on Westland Row for a period of quiet prayer in advance of the vigil. On Tuesday, the Shia Muslim community in Ireland held a peaceful demonstration outside the Embassy of Pakistan, protesting against violence towards innocent Shia Muslims in that country. On Sunday last, four activists from the Ukraine feminist group Femen were forcibly removed from St. Peter's Square for staging a topless protest during Pope Benedict's Angelus Address. One outraged pilgrim set about a protester with her umbrella screaming, You're the devil, enough. And it was announced earlier today that Monsignor Eamon Martin from Derry had been appointed as coadjutor to Cardinal Sean Brady. As coadjutor, he'll work alongside the Cardinal and take over when Cardinal Brady steps down. However, no date has been announced officially for Cardinal Brady's departure from his role, but the Godslot will be watching. We mentioned the Pope a moment ago and I'm joined now by columnist and teacher Breda O'Brien to talk about his latest book, the third in the trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth, where he examines the infancy narratives. Breda, this was the Grinch that spoiled Christmas. Um, not quite, but the way it was covered in the media, you would have thought that it, it was. like There was this wonderful headline in the Daily Mail, Killjoy Pope Crushes Christmas Nativity um, Traditions. Um, and it wasn't quite like that. I think what actually happened was that there were leaked excerpts from the Italian translation, which were very badly translated. And of course, the newspapers ran with them without waiting for the full English translation. So you had this idea that there, you know, we have to get rid of the ox and the donkey from the crib because they weren't there. But as usual, when you actually read the book, what you discover is that he said there was a manger there, which is, of course is used to feed animals, but there's no mention of specific animals. And then in the next paragraph, he goes on to say from the very early church, the tradition was that it was the ox and the ass because they applied a passage from Isaiah to it. So um, the rumours of destroying the cribs were greatly exaggerated. And Though he did say there was no reference to animals in the gospel. Yes, on his right. And how could he say anything else? There's no reference to any specific animals in, in the gospel. So he was just um, applying, he was saying that they had applied the tradition from the beginning. And it was the same with the angels. Apparently he was supposed to have said that the angels didn't um, uh, didn't didn't sing, but what he actually said was their normal speech was singing, so whatever they did was singing. So who is this book aimed at? Um, I think that this book is probably aimed at everybody. When I was reading it, I was thinking... This is a kind of a, a book for, it's it's like Des Kyo's music for middle brows. It's a middle brow kind of book. It's accessible, um, but you do have to make a bit of an effort. You have to actually, it's not it's not that you're going to sit down and read it uh, um, late at night and grasp every single word. And yet at the same time, it's not um, difficult. It's not a difficult book. Um, it, I suppose it's a book of what they call exegesis, where they try and take um, the, the scriptures, see what they meant in the context of their time and see how they apply to our life today. 
I have to admit I read it with a dictionary on one side and the Bible on the other. What was his intent, do you think? What did he want to achieve with this? I think it was a long time goal of his and that the becoming Pope kind of <laughs> interfered with it. He had a, he had um, he had always a, a great love for the books on, on the life of Christ that were around when he was a young man and they had a big influence on him. But obviously they date because they're interpreted in the light of the times that they were written in. So he always had this idea that he was going to um, write a life of Christ that was accessible to people today and um, because this one looks at the infancy narratives as kind of the prequel to the big books that looks at, uh, that look at the ministry of Jesus and that look at um, the, the resurrection and so on um, and um, this is now he's finally completed it he's done what he wanted to do and what are the themes he covers? Well, it's a short book, um, as you know, um, and it's got a foreword. It's got uh, there are four chapters and each of the chapters um, deals with a different topic. The first one looks at Jesus and um, in the context of the history, the historical Jesus, I suppose, and, and how the, the various, you know, the genealogies and all of that, how they fit into that. The next one concentrates on Mary, the role of Mary and the Annunciation. And there's actually um, how important she was in her role and that she's kind of like a model for the rest of us and how we should respond to the message of God. The and new I, Adam, he calls yes, her. Yes, yes, it's wonderful, I think. I think I think it's um, I think it's it's wonderful because uh, it's um, it's a lot better than the new Eve, <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, because it's looking at the 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 kind of the idea that you know this the, this new form of humanity and it happens to be uh, happens to be a woman and there's a lovely sentence in it his power is tied to the unenforceable yes of a human being and I really liked that the idea that the the free consent had to be given. And other themes? Um, the the part that caused all the trouble was the third chapter, which was the um, you know the historical the historical parts where he's, he's looking at those, and of course it's the usual thing. The critics are slamming him for daring to suggest that the ox and the ass weren't there, while at the same time rolling their eyes about the fact that he takes as historical fact the the virgin birth. But I think anyone who's expecting anything different from the book would have been greatly sir would have been deserved to have their expectations dashed. Well, you that are better qualified than I, is there anything new in it? Um, it's now that's a very interesting question. Is there anything new in it? There were things that were new to me, or even ways of just looking at things that that were new to me. But I, my theology is a long, long time ago. But what struck me about it was it, um, it, it while it wasn't you know it wasn't an easy read in in some ways that it made accessible things that. Um, that, that people hadn't thought about before. Like there's a lot of speculation, say, about the Magi and who were they and were they the Persian priests or were they, you know, Babylonian or, or what were they? But he's actually looking at them in the context of what do they mean today? And I think that's what's the new part of it, really. So would you recommend it? I would. I would. Um, it's it's a relatively short book. Um, somebody described it as having, you know, a favourite uncle or, you know, a brilliant godfather working with you through the infancy narratives. Um, it's There's a kind of a dry humour in parts of it. I, I liked some of the um, some of the asides he's talking about, for example, at one stage, um, he says that uh, Herod consulted his scripture experts when he heard that there was this threat of this new king. Um, and he says that they, they didn't actually do anything about it. They said it was quite possible that the Messiah was going to be born in this particular place at this particular time. But they didn't feel that they had any that gave them any need to actually go and do anything practical. And he has a dry little comment. He says, does this perhaps furnish us with the image of a theology that exhausts itself in academic dispute? 
disputes. So in other words, it's not meant to be about academic disputes. It's about living your life, I think. Now, you've already mentioned Mary and the way he puts mm. her in context. What, what other parts appeal to you? Um, the I, th- I think the part that I've mentioned there about the journey of the um, of the major, I think that that appealed to me because he looks at the whole idea of that, you know, I suppose the, the kind of the wider horizon and the search for truth. And in that, he actually says that religion, he acknowledges that religion can actually be a negative force and it can be something that imprisons people as well as frees, uh, as, as freeing them. And he says the significant thing about um, the Magi is that they were wise. And that's something I think we need a lot of um, in the in, in the world today. And another part of it that appealed to me is that there's a great sense of hope. There's a sense of that history has a meaning and that it has a purpose and that appealed to me greatly as well. Breed O'Brien, thank you for reviewing that for us and the three books in the trilogy Jesus of Nazareth are distributed in Ireland by Veritas. We turn now to the United States, where on Monday next, Barack Obama will be inaugurated for his second term as president. As with a lot of things to do with his presidency, controversy is never too far away. And the Reverend Louis Giglio, the evangelical pastor from Atlanta, chosen to deliver the benediction at the inauguration, was forced to withdraw. We're joined by telephone from New York by author and commentator David Gibson. David, why did Pastor Giglio have to withdraw? Well, he was chosen by Obama, I think directly by President Obama, to deliver this benediction. It's really the the prime spot for any religious leader in the inauguration, in part because of his – he's a white evangelical from a, a group, a sector of American society that did not support Barack Obama at all. They tend to go for Republicans very strongly. But uh, a, an audio recording of a sermon that Louis Giglio gave about 15 or 20 years ago surfaced in which he was very critical of gays and lesbians and talking about the aggressive, his words, uh, gay agenda and about uh, uh, gays and lesbians being able to change their orientation through the power of Jesus Christ. These uh, sentiments uh, are <laughs> very out beyond the pale these days in the American conversation. And Louis Giglio himself, although he didn't back away from them, insisted they weren't his priority. They didn't reflect his thinking and his agenda now. But the damage was done. Barack Obama doesn't need that kind of controversy. So um, Louis Giglio left and a replacement was sought. And would the inauguration committee not have picked up on this before his name was announced? Well, that's what a lot of people were saying. You know, the, you know there's a thing called Google. Uh, that you can do on the internet these days, and that they should have um, 
done their due diligence, as they say, a bit better. And you could have assumed that, look, a conservative Southern white evangelical, uh, you know, would have had some some skeletons in his closet in this regard. But the president really wants to reach out to show that he's reaching out, uh, even symbolically, at a grand civic ritual like the presidential inauguration. He wants to reach out across the spectrum, especially the religious spectrum, and especially to people who are considered his opponents, uh, those the white evangelical community. He did this in 2008 when he chose the Reverend Rick Warren, the best-selling author, mega-church pastor from Southern California, who also does not support gay rights. And there was some controversy back then, but Rick Warren never used that kind of direct, harsh language about gays and lesbians, so they were able to overcome that, uh, that opposition. Barack Obama wanted to do the same thing this time, so he shows uh, Reverend Louis Giglio, who really has been known for the last decade for his work against human trafficking, something that evangelicals in the United States, uh, an issue they were very much involved in. That's why he chose Louis Giglio, but these comments about uh, gays and lesbians came out, and that's really a, such a hot-button topic in the States these days. So who's the replacement? The replacement is the Reverend Louis Leon, an Episcopal priest from uh, the ch Episcopal Church almost right across the street from the White House there in Washington. It's uh, St. John's Episcopal Church, kind of known as the Church of the Presidents for 200 years since uh, President James Madison used to, to go there. And Barack Obama, like most recent presidents, has no fixed parish, no fixed congregation that he goes to. Uh, but that's the church that he and his family have attended uh, most frequently when they do go to church. It's a safe pick. Luis Leon, a, a good guy who knows the president, he's from uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States, the kind of U.S. branch of the Anglican Communion. And here in the United States, the Episcopal Church is very gay-friendly, um, you know, welcomes gay clergy, uh, blesses same-sex couples, that kind of thing. So he's really, um, you know, a safe pick. The president at this point doesn't want and doesn't need any more controversy surrounding the inauguration. And he will have heard him that morning at a service. Yes, indeed. So I think there will be um, a, a familiarity and a comfort level uh, with Dr. Leon. Uh, and there will be no, you know, no real chances of any... Uh, skeletons coming out of his closet in the next couple of days. Well, never say never, but David Gibson, for the moment, thank you for taking our call. Indeed. Thank you, Eileen. They're coming from all directions. These are just some of the early arrivals. Young and old, rich and poor, they've come from all corners of the country and beyond for a unique occasion, a special religious event. <laughs> Some come here for religion, others tradition, but it's faith that draws most of us to this place. I pray for peace and happiness and the long life of my husband. Last Monday, the Kumbh Mela festival got underway in India. 
the largest gathering of people on earth. It takes place every 12 years. The first day attracted 8 million pilgrims and there could be as many as 75 million by the end if previous years are anything to go by. Hindu actor and dancer Sanjeev Kumar, now resident in Ireland, was at the last festival and he joins us now in studio. Sanjeev, you've been with us before explaining the festival of Diwali, so welcome back. Thank you very much. Now tell us what Kumbh Mela is all about. The festival origins in Hindu mythology. Many believe that when gods and demons fought over a pitcher of nectar, a few drops fell in the Indian cities of Allahabad, Nasik, Ujjain and Haridwar. These are the four places where the festival has been held for centuries. The story goes that the demigods had lost their strength by the curse of Durvasa Muni. And to get it back, they approached Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva. And Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva directed all the demigods to the supreme personality of Lord Shivno, Lord Vishnu. And he instructed them to churn the ocean of milk called Kasira Sagra to receive Amrita. Amrita is that we say the nectar of immortality. Now this required them to make a temporary agreement with their arch enemies, the demons, whom in Hindi we call Asuras, to work together with the promise of sharing the wealth equally afterward. However, when the kumbha or urn containing the amrita appeared, of course a fight ensued. For twelve days and twelve nights, equivalent to twelve human years, the gods and demons fought in the sky for the part of amrita. And it is believed that during that battle, Lord Vishnu incarnated as a beautiful girl called Mohani, flew away with the kumbha and he spilled few drops of Amrita in India on Allahabad, Haridwar, Ujjain and Nasik. So people now converge and bathe in Sangam, is that where you call the place where the rivers meet? Yes. Actually, the Mela alternates between Nasik, Allahabad, Ujjain and Haridwar every three years. And the Ard Kumbha Mela, Ard mean half Kumbha Mela, is celebrated every six years, alternates between Haridwar and Allahabad only. And the Purna Kumbha Mela, that's we say complete Kumbha Mela, takes place every 12 years alternates between Allahabad, Haridwar, Ujjain and Nasik. So where is it this year? This year is in Allahabad and it goes mostly 55 days. And the Sangam, we call the confluence of Ganga, Jamuna and mythical Saswati that is in Prayag, Allahabad. So it's coming after again after 12 years. 
So you were there 12 years ago. What was the experience like? It was fabulous. I never forget. And you don't like to leave that place. And if you go there, really it was gorgeous, my experience. And uh, I think I was lucky to be there. But it was very crowded at the same time. And um, Did you get into the water? Oh, yes, uh, every time, every day when I was there. So even I could two, three times. I like to go again and again and again. And also by meeting some sadhus there all around to asking the question to them, to knowing the people. And uh, you feel you are totally in different planet that moment because you don't feel your other problems in your life when you're that place. You get kind of spiritual vibrations there because surrounding with the sadhus and other people, they are very, they have lots of faith for uh, holy rivers. Now you say that it lasts for 55 days. Are yeah. there special occasions within those days? Yes, there are special occasions in special this uh, Kumbha Mela, Makaskranti, Posh Purnima, Amoni Amabasya Sanan, Basant Panchami Sanan, Rat Sattami Sanan and Bhishma Ekadasi Sanan. These are the major bathing day in that festival. For example, the Makar Sakranti. A holy bath during this period carries special significance. Those who take a holy bath in the Ganga, Jamna or any holy river, Godavari, Krishna and Kaveri, they get special blessing. And then Posh Purnima. The day occurs when the moon is full in the Hindu month of Posh. This is the last full moon of winter. By this time, the sadhus and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims arrive at Kumbha Mela. And then, Moni Mahabhasyasanan. For the holy men and women, this is the main bathing day. New members to various holy monastic orders receive their first initiation on this day. And then, Basant Panchami Sanan. This is the fifth day of the luminous half of the lunar month and it is the beginning of spring in North India. Then, Rath Saptami Sanan. Sanan means bath. Rath Saptami festival is observed on the seventh days of Shukla Parkha, Paksha in the Magh month in the traditional Hindu calendar. In English we say, which we say January and February. And, and then, Bhishma Ekadasi Sanan. On this day, Bhishma Pitamaha is remembered the oldest, wisest, most powerful and most holy person belonging to the Kuru dynasty, I think approximately over 5,000 years ago. So these are the few special bathing day in this whole Kumbha Mela. And mostly people, because if they are not able to go every day, but they try to be go on these special days to take a special bath. And up to 75 million people, it's reckoned, will have been there over the course of the 55 days. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. Well, we are lucky today that we can see pictures and the pictures are always fabulous when we see them. But after visiting the festival in 1895, the great American writer Mark Twain said, it's wonderful, the power of a faith like that, that can make multitudes upon multitudes of the old and the weak and the young and frail enter without hesitation or complaint upon such incredible journeys and endure the resultant miseries without repining. It's done in love or it's done in fear. I do not know which it is. No matter what the impulse is, the act born of it is beyond imagination, marvellous to our kind of people, the cold whites. Sanjeev Kumar, thank you very much for telling us about your festival. Thank you. And that's our programme for this week. The week of prayer for Christian unity began today and lasts until next Friday, the 25th. Check with your local church for details. And on Sunday on RTE1 television, Gay Byrne's guest in The Meaning of Life is former Governor of Mount Joy, John Lonergan. Your comments, as always, are welcome. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. Our phone number 01... 2082039 and letters should be sent to the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday evening at the same time. Gujishin, Gugudi Jiyashiv.